Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. It's good to have you with me today. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly. Today's conversation centers around legal abuse and when ongoing court proceedings become an attempt at manipulation and control. I'm joined in this conversation by Tina Swithin. Tina runs an organization called One Mom's Battle, and Tina is going to give us some insight into post-separation abuse and what you can do to protect yourself and your children. I know a lot of us deal regularly with feelings we'd rather not have, feelings like loneliness, anxiety, rejection, anger, and depression. The ways we've learned to cope with these emotions and with our triggers can help us survive but they can also eventually keep us stuck in patterns that cause us to feel overwhelmed and threaten our well-being and our relationships, especially when it comes to our kids. Over at plusoneparents.org slash quiz, you can take the what's your stress style quiz and learn more about how your coping strategies might actually be holding you back, but how you can also make changes that will get you moving forward. That quiz again is at plusoneparents.org slash quiz. When it comes to the legal system and all of the expenses that go into ongoing court proceedings, there is just this sense of powerlessness that can continue to be so overwhelming. What I love about Tina's approach here is that she shares with us the things that are within our control and where we can gain some stable footing. Here is my conversation with Tina Swithin. Tina, I'm so glad to have you with me today. Welcome to the podcast. I am honored to be here. It's such an important topic and really grateful for this time. Absolutely. And Tina, it is an important topic. Post-separation abuse is something that we might actually experience. We might feel it going on, but we might not really have words to put to that experience. And I think there's oftentimes this misconception that, well, this relationship ended So the abuse should end. And it's just not the case. So would you give us some insight into post-separation abuse and some forms that it takes? Absolutely. What we, we know about domestic violence is that it's about power and control. That's the 101 of domestic violence. And like you touched on, uh, there is a huge misconception about the reality of domestic violence. And there is a, a, a disconnect between what we're being taught about domestic violence, um, whether it's the general public survivors, victims of domestic violence, and, um, and, and the support systems and the reality of what victims face when they leave the relationship. And so, you know, we are telling victims of domestic violence that leaving is the right thing to do, which it absolutely is. Um, and we encourage them to be brave. We apply that 
fun to leave. But I think so many people are wearing, myself included, um, you know, I can take myself back 12 years in time. And so many of us are or were wearing rose-colored glasses to a fault if, if we believe that the abuser's need for power and control just mysteriously vanishes when the relationship ends. Um, Oftentimes, what we know is that the need for power and control actually intensifies. And, you know, sometimes the abuser is triggered. Maybe they have abandonment issues, which is really common. And so the, the, um, their victim leaving the relationship, that can trigger something deep inside. Um, and, So during these times, the need for power and control, yes, it intensifies. It can become very dangerous for this brave survivor. And when there are children involved, um, what we refer to as post-separation abuse, and, you know, I should backtrack a little bit, post-separation abuse actually starts before the relationship ends. And that can be those seeds being planted that you'll never make it without me. And I remember that all too well. That was the the dynamic in my own relationship. These seeds of doubt planted that, you know, I would never be able to get out. And um, so the post-separation abuse, it can start, um, during the relationship, but then that date, the final date where the victim decides to leave, when there are children involved, um, the post-separation abuse that survivors are subjected to is often worse than what they experience during their relationship. Because mainly because during the relationship, you know, to some degree, we're able to shelter the children. Or we we believe we are, you know. I I what I know now, looking back, I wasn't. You know, mm-hmm. it's children are seeing everything and they're little sponges. But yeah. in our minds, that's one of the things holding us together is that we are able to shelter them. Once you leave, um, many times our hands are tied by the family court system. And our attempts to protect our children come with significant backlash uh, much of the time. We're in a family court system where parental rights seem to trump child safety. And, you know, I can state as fact, survivors um, face a victim-blaming mentality in the family court system. I remember my judge actually saying to me, you chose to have children with this person. Mm. He can't be that bad. Mm. And Mm. the, you know, during the post-separation abuse, the family court system becomes the new platform and venue for the abuse. So it doesn't, the power and control just transfers onto this new platform. And the majority of the time, um, it's a very uneven playing field. Um, and, and the children become the pawns and the weapons of the abuser because the abuser knows that is the number one way. That's the way to go for our jugular. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they know that by hurting the children or using the children in that fashion is the way to hurt us. And, um, you know, the, the abuser typically thrives when the spotlight is on him. And I use him pronouns just because yeah. research shows that it is, you know, there are victims of, I always like to preface, there are victims of domestic yes. violence who are men. Mm-hmm. But um, I speak from my personal experience and the experience of, of many that I help. You know, the, the abuser loves conflict. Yeah. It is can be a drug, it can be a feed supply. And on the other side of that coin is the survivor who is typically conflict avoidant to a fault. That's mm. how we were targeted. Mm-hmm. That's how we stayed for as long as we did many times. Yeah. And um, and the survivor is often suffering from trauma and or anxiety, PTSD, all of the above. And when you're in that space, after years of abuse, or even a short time of abuse, we don't present as well. And we find ourselves in a court system that has little to no training on the 101 of domestic violence, let alone the more covert, pervasive, insidious mm-hmm. domestic violence that many of us have been suggest- subjected to for so many years. Yes. And you said a couple of things. I just want to like backtrack a little bit because you said sure. a couple of things that were just so incredibly powerful. The first one being that this is going to intensify because power and control are is the method by which abusers are able to do the things that they do it's how they operate in life it's how they have malad- have developed a maladaptive coping strategy for their own struggles their own trauma these types of things and when we experience the separation from them even if we were not the one who left but if by virtue of the fact that when this person left we said okay I'm not going to come after you anymore. I'm just going to, I'm going to let it be. Then there is this sense of this power getting taken away from them. And so whether you're the one who actually left or whether you were left, but you decided, okay, I'm going to move on with my life. They now are experiencing a void of the adoration, the control, all of the things that they were getting out of your relationship and that void puts them into a tailspin. And so that's where we're going to see these really severe grasps for control and for attention and all these types of things, because now they are without the very thing that they were getting from your relationship. And they're going to do every possible thing that they can do to get it back. And as you mentioned, the easiest way to do that is to put your children in the middle. And so if you would do anything for your children and they know you would, they know, as you said, you're conflict avoidant or, you know, you're just very often you are a warm hearted, loving, generous person. They know this. This is why they got into a relationship with you in the first place. And so because they know that you dearly love your children and would do whatever was needed, then they find the various hoops to make it just even more difficult for you, but easier for them to get some sense of that control back, even if it's clear that the relationship is going to be over. Right. But the thing I want you to highlight more for us, you talked about your own experience in the family courts and how the family court system is not set up 
to understand this experience, not set up to understand abusive dynamics. So for a woman who might be finding herself in that tailspin of being dragged through the legal system, can you give us a sense of what does the American legal system know or not know when it comes to these types of dynamics? It's, you know, it's painful to talk about because, you know, not only from my, my own experience, but I've spent the past decade walking this journey with other people. And, you know, back when I started in 2009, um, I felt like I was the only person in the entire world going through this. You feel like you're in the twilight zone or this alternate reality because nothing makes sense. And you start doubting, am I the problem? Mm-hmm. And um, you're, you're thrust into this system that is very misogynistic, very patriarchal. You know, a lot of people say the family court system is broken. It was created this way. And um, that's a, a painful reality to absorb. And two years ago, through my advocacy, I started looking. Um, deeper into the reality of the court system and the training that is given to judicial officers and other family court professionals. And I was shocked to discover that in most states, there is zero requirements for family court professionals, judges, to be trained in domestic violence. These are the people who are deciding the fate of our children Yet they have absolutely no education in trauma, in domestic violence, in the research that is currently available. I'm in California and where I am, there is a, it's a mere suggestion that judges should receive a few hours of training in domestic violence within the first year on the bench, but it's just a, a suggestion. And meanwhile, they're sitting on the bench and they're making decisions that, you know, I, I have lost a lot of clients who have been murdered as a result of family court failures. And so it's very personal for me. And I, I work very hard to shine a spotlight on this because the average person who has never stepped foot in the courtroom just assumes that our courts are acting in the best interest of children. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. Um, You know, this is very much the norm. And I, my daughters now are 14 and 16 years old. I would be willing to bet that they are more educated on domestic violence and could train judges better than the 101, you know, online courses that they're required or encouraged to take. Um, I've heard from attorneys that in many of these online courses that our judicial officers are taking. So if they do decide to take a course on domestic violence, you push play, you walk away, you go make lunch, you go do other things. And there's no, you know, and, and I've talked to people who lead conferences and trainings in person, and they say what commonly happens is these individuals will come in, check in, sign their name on the sheet, and then go out into the hallway and make phone calls and do other things. So what is happening is beyond 
unacceptable. And, um, you know, I, a, a common analogy I use, it take, would take me longer to go down to my local animal shelter and adopt a puppy than it takes for a judge to decide the fate of my child. You know, that is an absolute crisis. And, um, you know, one that regardless of if you're in the system or if you just happen to be listening and watching today, if you know a woman, I don't care if it's a neighbor, uh, your child's teacher, you know, your sister, cousin, mom, you know, anyone, you should care about what's happening in our family court system mm -hmm. because it does affect you. You know, these children are our future. Mm -hmm. And what is happening is causing, you know, generational cycles that are going to continue mm -hmm. if we don't all come together and, you know, demand better. You know, I, I just delivered a speech in my local my local area in California. And I one of the things I said was, I get what the report that a suggestion is for domestic violence training, but we could take it upon ourselves to think outside the box and mm -hmm. do better mm -hmm. and bring training in and, and, you know, who cares what the requirement or the suggestion is you should want to do better. Mm -hmm. And it seems like what really is missing here is there's not an accountability piece. And I think that's actually something that you try to bring through the work that you do is the understanding that if there is an incorrect decision that is made, that the consequence falls then on the victim and her children. And in some cases, as you mentioned, it is life destroying, literally taking yeah. their lives, but there is no accountability to go backwards then and to fix what's broken. And no. so this is repeated over and over and over again, because there's just nothing built in there to change that or change right. the underlying attitudes that right. are somewhat reticent or yeah. dismissing whatever you want to call it or ignorant, you know, like uh. we'll just we'll run the gamut here, but you know, that there is just basically nothing that is motivating a change internally, especially when you're considering everyone's talking about workloads and, you know, we're doing this and that and all these kind of things that it's like, oh, well, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's going to happen, but it's, you know, it's going to be a one-off. It, it's just this minimizing right. thing, but it's like, that's how abusers end up ab like abusing right. their targets is to get them to minimize things. And yeah. so it's basically that this whole thing is now, at the system level and right. the women and children who are caught up in this. And yes, as you mentioned, it does happen to men, but by and large, right. the women and children who are caught up in this are the ones who have to pay for it. But Absolutely. Tina, there are some empowerment pieces to this. There is, right. there are some things that women who are caught in these situations are able to do responses that we might be giving that are not so helpful for us that might be causing us to play into this whole dynamic. So can you talk right. about some of the things, some of the hope that does exist beyond this as far right. as how we can respond if we're in these situations? So, you know, the, the typical and normal reactions and responses of a victim in domestic violence can worsen the situation. And you know, just going back a little bit into my own story and experience, 
Um, I prepared my initial court declarations. I, I was forced to act as my own attorney because this, for many, is a very uneven playing field. And um, I prepared my initial court declarations from the women's shelter. Um, there was no internet. I vividly remember standing with my laptop in the the windowsill of the court of the the shelter window and trying to tap into internet from a, a nearby home. And you know when when I showed up into the courtroom for that first day, and I was so incredibly naive believing that that phrase that's all over the court paperwork that's, you know, drilled into all of us in their best interest. That's all I wanted. Um, I believed walking into that courtroom that my children would be protected. And unfortunately, what I, you know, I walked in looking like a deer in headlights um, in a state of complete trauma, afraid for my life, yet expected to present well. And I had never been in a courtroom in my life. That was traumatizing in itself. And when the judge looked at me and said, if this is the way you two are going to start the court process, you both have issues. And I felt like someone knocked the wind out of me. And I was met with the harsh reality that victims are automatically lumped into the high conflict category. Um, I work hard to, to educate that it only takes one person to create a high conflict situation. Um, the majority of these cases, one parent simply is desperate to um, protect their kids. But you know the the learning experience for me hindsight is 2020 i walked into the courtroom expecting validation and justice and i quickly discovered that neither of those things are what is being served up in family court and so for me it was a lot of trial and error my turning point was radical acceptance and managing my expectations. You know, it's, um, it's definitely not a warm, fuzzy topic. You know, you are just a case number and a business transaction to the court. And so I learned the importance of keeping emotions out of the courtroom. You know, the sad reality is that most family court professionals are pretty narcissistic or unemotional themselves. Um, they do see us as case numbers, and because they aren't trained in trauma, the emotions that are natural, you know, nature intended for me to protect my young, um, but that's actually used against you um, when you show up with that type of presentation. So, you know, for me, it was radical acceptance that the court did not care who he was, what had happened in the past for the most part. Um, and it was a painful pill to swallow, but it was the first step for me in moving towards a, a strategy mindset. And, um, it, you know, that, that's the harsh, another harsh reality of what we face. And, you know, so my encouragement, my recommendation would be learn the court system, like the back of your hand, 
You know, when people come to me with a question, it's very difficult to answer because every judge, every court system is so different. I could walk into five different courtrooms mm-hmm. with the same case, the same story, and um, I'm going to get five different outcomes. Yeah. So we have to, um, you know, my turning point, one of them came by sitting in the courtroom. Now we Zoom, you know, a lot of courts have moved towards Zoom and studying the judge, studying the attorneys studying the other cases, connecting with moms who are going through similar things in my area. Um, I used to follow moms out of the courtroom. I probably looked like a stalker (laughs) and I would (laughs) introduce myself and say, Mm -hmm. you know, I would love to connect. We have some things in common. Mm -hmm. And so, and because this is an isolating journey, that is so important, you know, Mm -hmm. connecting with others who are going through similar things. And part of sitting in the courtroom and learning the system and specifically your system, it helps you to desensitize yourself to, you know, because it's such a foreign environment and the courtroom itself can be very triggering. Um, I've shared in my book, when I used to open the courtroom door and walk through, I would visualize myself grabbing God's hand Mm-hmm. and and walking in the door mm-hmm. and um it brought me such peace knowing that you know i am i'm in god's hands and i have to trust that there are going to be so many times where i don't agree with the outcome i don't agree with the decision that was made today but i have to you know determine what's in my control and what isn't And when I hit that, you know, realization that this truly isn't in my control, it was turning it over. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm a really stubborn person, so (laughs) that's easier said than done. (laughs) There are three words every abuse survivor must hear. God hates abuse. Plus One Parents has released a devotional for abuse survivors called Safe Haven, a devotional for the abused and abandoned. Safe Haven is a biblically-based guide to abuse, giving you the tools that you need to identify it, respond to it, and heal from it. Safe Haven is now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats, and you can locate a link to purchase your copy down in the show notes. You know, that's so beautiful what you're saying, because the Lord is with us as we're going through these things, and it is awful. But this radical acceptance piece is so critical because what gets us so frustrated is when we're in the ideal and we know that what's happening is unfair and it doesn't match. And that actually can deepen that sense of powerlessness that we're already feeling. That's already part of this trauma that we're experiencing because we want it to be a certain way that this world just is not. And so when we go to the radical acceptance, it's saying, well, this is what I got. So if me being mama bear emotional, even though I feel that and it's real, but if I bring that into the courtroom, that's actually going to hurt me, then I will 
put that in a different place. I will show the mama bear to my friends, my counselor, whomever is helping me through these things. Right. And you hit on such an important point there though. And I think that's incredibly brave for you to walk up to women completely stranger and just say, (laughs) Hey, uh, can I get to know you? But, but it is, it is community. And so whether it is that you are embracing other people who have walked this journey and learning how they've done it, learning from their mistakes, learning from their successes and grabbing some of that, whether it, as I said, is a counselor who can help you understand your own trauma responses. Why do I go to fight, flight, freeze? Why do I disassociate? Why do I shut down? Like whatever your responses are, figuring out what they are and how to get through them in a given moment. And having those body of believers who can reinforce to you, God loves you. He is with you. You are not crazy. He's with your kids. And that though you may experience setback, none of this is outside of God's hands. And that there may be some times though, where we feel like we want to fight. And this is something I want to ask you about. There may be some times that we feel like, but I got to fight all of the battles. I got to fight all of them. Everything that comes across my plate, I got to fight for my kids. I got to fight for all of them. But as you said, with a strategic mindset though, if that's really where we're going with this, then we may have the understanding that there's got to be some battles that we pick. Absolutely. And that is something that I am so big on. And I really, really try to instill in other people, you know, choosing our battles wisely is so important because we're dealing, we're up against someone who thrives in the place of conflict. And, you know, you are going to be invited to every battle under the sun. And this is another area where learning the court system is so important because you need to know what they care about, what they pay attention to, what's going to register for them as unacceptable. You know, their threshold of what's acceptable is much different from mine Mm -hmm. um, because they do get so calloused and desensitized. So when we show up and engage in the small battles or the insignificant things, which may feel significant to us in that moment, it muddies the water. Mm -hmm. And then the court cannot focus on the big things like child safety. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, I would not argue with my ex if he's accusing me of neglect because my two-year-old had mismatched socks on. And I think I actually did get accused of neglect or something Mm. like that. Mm. And, you know, and so for me, I came up with a variety of canned responses um, that I could pull from, and it allowed me to shut down the accusations without engaging in that type of banter mm-hmm. um, because it ends up annoying the court and you both look problematic. There that, you know, then the court's able to take the lazy approach and say, you're both, you just can't get along and you can't put the kids first. And so, you know, an example of that, if my ex came to me and said, um, you know, you're a negligent mom, she keeps showing up with different socks on or whatever it is, you know, my response would be, your your attempt to portray me in a negative light for litigation purposes has been noted, um, but I don't agree with your portrayal of the events or something like that. And I'm still I'm being polite, you know. I'm not 
Um, you know, be, I'm not attacking back. I'm not, I'm mm-hmm. operating from my place of truth, but I'm kind of calling it out a little bit and shutting yeah. it down. Um, and that one may be, you know, it has to be authentic to the person. It still yeah. needs to be your own words, but I came up with a whole bunch of responses that, you know, I actually had a word doc on my computer. I would cut and paste them. I would yeah. alter them a little bit, but when you're in that mode and you're triggered, And when somebody is accusing you of being negligent to your children, which they're the most important things in this world to you, you take that personally and the mama bear, you know, comes out with claws. And so it's, you know, pulling back on that and not engaging, um, especially if it's something that the court's just not going to care about. You know, we have to remember the court's scale, you know, they are seeing horrific abuse and it's all abuse is all horrific yeah. but when they're when i've sat through court dates and heard things that have rocked my life forever and when the courts are hearing these you know things where they have pictures or a child's in a hospital and a child has been seriously injured and then we're coming in talking about mismatched mm-hmm. socks mm-hmm. their scale is very distorted mm-hmm. And I think that's important what you mentioned, the scale there, because they, and this is some of where, for example, if there's been emotional abuse specifically that's occurred versus physical abuse, the court can weigh it differently if there is already evidence that a child has been physically hurt, but they're less likely to move in the direction of very much involvement when it's the potential of abuse. And I think that's the thing. It's hard because to us, these are our kids. So we look at potential abuse as, as just as good as if it is happening. Right. And psychological, emotional abuse is just as bad as if it is physically happening. But in the court's understanding, especially when you consider the way that the foster care system is set up, the court would like to see families reunified. They would like to see if that is possible, whether or not it's healthy. And some of that is by by virtue of having so many children that are in the system that it's one of the easiest ways basically to solve the problem is if we can send them back home. And we have to understand though, that if that is the attitude in this other segment of the court system, then when they hear, as you said, about mismatched socks, they're like, are you for real? Right. So- And we end up giving our power away when we give credence to those kinds of arguments. So as you said, we look like, oh, you guys are just two high conflict people who can't get along rather than allowing the argument to fall because we didn't disengage or we didn't engage it. So if it's like, um, I understand you feel that way. I'm sorry. I disagree. Then then we obviously have our feet underneath us, have our ground underneath us. And then it can be seen for what it really is. If you choose to not engage and get mad and bicker and all this kind of stuff, then they look at that argument and go, that's ridiculous. And so then it's really shown for what it is. But as you said, that trauma gets engaged, that mama bear gets engaged, all of those, those feelings. And so we end up hurting ourselves in the process because now we have given our power back to this person who that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted your power from you and done it on a stage though, that could end up when a bigger battle comes 
that we've already kind of put ourselves in a weaker position when that bigger battle comes that we do want to be taken seriously. And I think that's the biggest thing about this is feeling like we're not being taken seriously. But if we can have the mindset that there are battles that will need to be chosen and your power actually rests in not responding to these attacks, in setting the boundaries, and that's what these canned responses are. These are setting the boundaries. I am not going to absorb the damage of this accusation. And as we grow in that, and unfortunately, the way we grow is by practice. (laughs) But as we grow in that, we do get stronger. It's one of those things that... Once we try it, we're like, well, that felt that felt kind of good. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And and these people are typically their own worst enemies. Mm-hmm. And so as you get stronger in that, you know, looking at their attacks and almost predicting it and and sometimes finding humor in it, going, wow, you know, I saw that coming. And, you know, if this is the best use of your time. Mm-hmm. you know, I have no words. I mean, this is just a waste of life. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, start starting to see it for what it is, you know, it's, they're typically all the same and they're their own worst enemy. Mm -hmm. And so if you can just keep disengaging, they usually build the case against themselves. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of sitting back and allowing that to happen. Mm-hmm. And we, that's where disengaging our emotions gives us the benefit of perspective and time. Yes. And yes. It, it's not easy, especially when we fear that our kids would be manipulated or hurt in the process. But I think this also creates a stability, not just within ourselves and as we're trying to work through this post-separation abuse, but it creates a stability in our households that then our example shows our kids more the differences between these two experiences of these two households, for example, rather than anything we could say, rather than trying to convince our kids that, no, you know, that's not right. Or, you know, you need to watch out for this or, you know, that kind of stuff. It's that stability that we carry is brings so much safety for our kids. Absolutely. Modeling, modeling and healthy behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, never, I'm a firm believer in teaching kids about, you know, the things, the red flags, the boundaries, whatever, never directed at the other parent, Mm -hmm. Um, just general life lessons that I didn't learn, but I wish I would have. Yes. And then when they're able to connect the dots on their own, and, and, you know, connect that to the unhealthy parents behavior. It's mm-hmm. more powerful than anything we could ever say. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of other places where this plays out in their lives that you don't Absolutely. need to direct it that way. It's going to happen Never. with kids at school, bullies on the playground, yes. uh, love interests, especially if you have teenagers, you know, those kinds of yeah. things that these are life lessons. As you said, they're going to need them in the workplace. They're going to need them everywhere. So there are plenty of other arenas where these skills are going to be useful for them and that we can draw from as far as examples and those types of things. But Tina, for a woman who is navigating the legalities and maybe doing it alone, maybe this this thing is so expensive, you know, and that's really what is also being leveraged here though, is the powerlessness that a woman might feel from a financial perspective. So when it comes to learning the system and getting a team behind you and getting resourced, what are some things that you can recommend? You know, what I'll say, you know, uh, 
connect in your local area, find out if there are any legal aid clinics, if there are any, um, I know for in my area, we had a women's network that held a quarterly uh, legal area where you would come together, you pay a donation, it could be $25, you can meet with an attorney for 30 minutes, um, you know, anything like that, or anywhere um, like support groups in your area, other single moms, connect with them. And, and I think a really important topic is documentation, you know, and, and we hear that over and over again. And, but what does that mean? You know, for me, it was document everything and then document more. <laughs> and then, mm. and, um, but I'll say, you know, there were so many junctures where I felt defeated, hopeless, frustrated, because here I'm doing what I was told to do. I'm documenting everything, but I felt like no one was listening. And for me, I found it was empowering to, to start documenting because then it downloaded it from my head, all those you know thoughts and, and anxiety swirling and getting it out and purging it onto paper and um, capturing it and then letting it go. I, I truly do credit documentation with how I finally protected my children. Mm. Um, but on that note, I will say 99% of my documentation has never been seen by anyone. Yeah. And it, it was just that 1%, you never know what somebody is going to put under a microscope mm-hmm. or when you're going to come across a family court professional that says, on this topic, tell me more about this, show me proof. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, documenting everything can be cathartic to, again, that release and getting it out. Um, but also, you never know who is going to come along on your path and turn things around, you know, and that's where that leaning into our faith and, and trusting that things are happening, you know, for a bigger purpose. You know, I, I feel like that is very much my story. Mm. And, um, but when you're in it, you know, it's, um, it's easier said than done. Um, it's a lot. And, yeah. and my heart goes out to anybody who's in this. You know, I went through um, minors counsel being appointed, so many CPS investigations, police officer contact, two full child custody evaluations um, before my kids were finally protected and mm-hmm. safe. And, mm-hmm. and it was years. And um, you're constantly you know, thinking they're going to be harmed. It's going to be this, this damage that's being done on a weekly and daily basis. How does anyone ever turn this around and Mm. and such a helpless, hopeless feeling? So, you know, find the support systems wherever they may be, um, you know, through your church, through, you know, I know it's really for me to watch churches you know, have these divorce support groups and Mm -hmm. some are better than others, but, you know, Mm -hmm. find one that works for you. And, you know, that you are, when you leave, that you're feeling strengthened, you know, trusting your gut, because there are going to be some groups and some support networks that it's just not the right fit. If you're Mm -hmm. leaving constantly, 
filled with more doubt or filled with more pain, that's not the right group for you, you know, but, um, I think it's so great that you mentioned that there is going to be a process with this because I had that in my own experience and it was very unexpected to me finding a small group that I fit into. And actually some of the best supporters were people who had been remarried. So they were people who had been through these types of experiences and then could offer the hope though, of here's what life can look like after all of this. And it wasn't because they were remarried. It was just because it though, that they had had time and perspective and things change. And it is that sense that, yes, I've been where you are. I'm not there anymore. And this is where I am now. And you can be too. And I think it's just that beacon to grab onto that, like, okay, then you get me and then I can cry with you. (laughs) You know, you'll, you'll, you can hold my suffering because you suffered too. And that is so scriptural that these things that we go through, that there are always going to be people ahead of us down the road who've been through the same things. And eventually we're going to be able to be that for somebody else. And right now, don't worry about that. Just receive whatever God has for you in the people around you, but it may take some work. Tina, this has just been so encouraging. And I know that something that you have already said, I'm sure that there's a listener who's going, yes, okay, yes, you know. But at the end of every conversation, I ask each guest the same question. And it is if there was just one thing that you wanted a single mom to know what would it be? Keep your oxygen mask on securely. Um, I am a firm believer that it, it really only takes one healthy parent for children to come through these situations as solid, whole individuals. And for me, I had to remind myself that, you know, my daughters were on their own parallel path. And as much as my, you know, Everything I want in as a mom wanted to be able to shelter them and protect them. I had to trust that their journey was also unfolding the way it was supposed to. And when my kids, you know, started out on this path with me, they were two and four. And today we just went and looked at colleges recently for my oldest daughter. And I will tell you, they are two of the most amazing. Um individuals. And it gives me so much hope for our future generations. We have to be that, that strong parent. And, you know, this can be so exhausting, um, not just because you're a single parent, but you're having to counter the damage that is often happening on the other side, you know, having a good therapist, um, you know, our kids are dependent on us to be their rocks. And that is a role that we have to take so seriously. So keep your tank filled wherever you can, even if, you know, I previously, you know, during my marriage, I thought of, you know, filling my tank as a spa day or, you know, going to get a massage. Now it may be a cup of coffee, you know, five minutes before everybody else wakes up in the morning, all of those little things that fill our tank so that we can show up and be the mama bears that our kids need us to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's such good advice. Thank you so much for that, Tina. Mm-hmm. Tina, would you tell listeners about your resources and how they can follow you? Absolutely. One Mom's Battle is my, my main website hub. We have a very active Facebook page, Instagram account. Um, 
you can find the post-separation abuse wheel, which will go into further detail on everything we've talked about today. And that's just postseparationabuse.com. It'll take you straight to the wheel, but that also links you to the One Mom's Battle website. So I have books on Amazon. My books, um, it's a whole series titled Divorcing a Narcissist. And um, on the One Mom's Battle website, I also offer online courses, um, which will go into further detail on a lot of the things we've talked about today. And I will include links in the show notes to make it easier for listeners to find your resources. But thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Absolutely. Take care. If you found this conversation helpful, I've got a couple of others that you might enjoy. Check out episode 105, Am I Safe? Experiencing Physical, Emotional, and Spiritual Security After Abuse with Sarah McDougall. Also check out episode 92, Parenting with an Abuser, Strategies for Parallel Parenting and Helping Your Children Cope with Joy Forest. We'd love to invite you to get involved with the Plus One Parents community. You can join us on Facebook or Instagram at plusone.parents. And on Facebook, you can join our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Also at plusoneparents.org, we are constantly adding new resources related to all of the topics that we cover here on the Christian Single Moms podcast. That's everything from parenting to dating to spiritual and emotional well-being. If you'd like to stay up to date on the new resources as we release them, you can join our mailing list there as well at plusoneparents.org. I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you were able to join me for this episode today. I pray always that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.